WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about political polls. Can we ever trust them again? We'll talk about the state of the art in political polling, why polls sometimes get it wrong, the emerging challenges for pollsters, and what citizens need to know about who and what to believe. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Bain. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio is Amy Freed. Amy's been on the program a couple times before. She is the professor and department chair in political science at the University of Maine. Um, she's working a, on a book about the strategic uses of distrust in government. Welcome, Amy. Great to be here. Joining us on the phone today is Courtney Kennedy. Courtney is director of survey research at the Pew Research Center and a widely regarded expert on the subject. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks very much. So glad to have you with us. So we're less than three weeks away from the general election on November 6th, and many of us can barely stand the suspense. There seems to be so much at stake, regardless of which side you're on. We want to know how it's going to end. We can hardly stand to wait, um, either to cushion our blow of, uh, for disappointment or to alleviate our anxiety. We want to see how it's going to come out. Sometimes we look at political polling like reading the end of the book first to... Uh, get the suspense over with. But to some people, the polling in the 2016 presidential election was the biggest failure of political polling since Dewey defeats Truman in 1948. How can we ever believe them again? Amy, let me put it to you first. Why did the 2016 polls fail so spectacularly? Or why do people think that anyway? Well, when it comes to national polls, the 2016 polls really didn't fail. They showed Hillary Clinton with about a three-point lead, and that is what she won by nationally. So, um, you know, I think that uh, kind of uh, is often lost. Uh, But really, with any kind of campaign polling, the biggest question is who is going to vote. You can ask uh, people their preferences, but you don't really know for sure who's going to show up. So uh, different differences between what's projected turnout in a particular demographic in one state or another can really make a difference. Carolyn, Carolyn, Courtney, jump in on that. Um, You you know, if if we got the national right, then that must mean we got the states wrong. And how did that happen? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, It's important to note that the sort of group of organizations that tend to do polling at the national level are actually different than pollsters that tend to do state and local races. And at the national level, um, we did see very good accuracy in 2016. The national pollsters tend to have more resources, more experience that they can put into each poll, and and that that comes out in the results. At the state and local level, you see a different set of pollsters. 
um, you know, for example, a media national poll might be Gallup or CNN, whereas, you know, a typical state poll is probably done by like a city uh, newspaper or a city uh, network um, news channel. And they have, you know, far fewer resources to put into their polling. And so what you see is systematically, not, not all state and local polls, there are some very good ones, but your typical state and local poll is done on a smaller budget and doesn't have the rigorous methodology that, that you see um, at uh, the national level. So, you know, thinking back to, you know, Dewey beats Truman and how shocking that was to people when it came out the other way. I mean, I think people felt some of the same surprise in the 2016 election. How did polling recover in 1948 from the sort of catastrophic failure of their projections and how do we rebuild trust after 2016 amy well um as you know and i have a my last book is called is called pathways to polling it has two chapters on the dewey v truman race and uh really look at how polling recovered i mean part of what happened with that situation is that uh the pollsters were using an outdated method that really didn't work very well called quota polling where uh, individuals would go out and try to find people to represent different groups of the population. Uh, But what happens is that sometimes when that happens, (laughs) you can uh, have have the people who are picking individuals, like looking for uh, an African-American female certain age to fill in the quota for that, or uh, um, a white man, you know, living in the South, uh, you know, of a certain certain age or, or whatever, that, that they end up uh, having some biases in, in who they, they approach and who they pick. And uh, that's what the studies that were done afterwards said, that this was really, really a problem. And even though there was a lot of public um, mockery, really, of the results, uh, there was a lot of interest in continuing to use polling, if only because it was so helpful for a number of different organizations. I mean, polling had been used by that time, different kinds of survey research from everyone from the U.S. government during World War II to all kinds of advertisers and people doing in the media world doing market audience research and, of course, by by scholars. And so, you know, there was an attempt to really look at the systematic problems in the public polling of 1948 and to make corrections. I mean, you can see where the polling serves the interests of campaigns and trying to figure out how to build an effective strategy to win a campaign. Um, I mean, one of the questions that we want to answer today, though, is, is it really serving voters? Um, Courtney, for example, I, I think in, in the last poll, there were some um, speculation that the uh, the big tilt in the polling towards one candidate probably depressed turnout for her. And I'm wondering if these polls affect voter behavior and um, whether that's really good for us, for people. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree that that is um, it's a critical concern. Everyone that I talk to in the polling field is, is worried about that. And um, I think it's fair to say it's a grossly understudied topic, given its importance and given what happened in 2016. Um, uh, my colleague Salman Messing and some of his uh, co-authors did 
did try to do a little bit of, of work in this area. It was experimental, but they were trying to answer the question of whether, you know, when the public sees the results of a poll um, or the results of one of these probability forecasts, how do they interpret that and, and how does that affect them? Um, and so by probability forecast, I'm talking about the things that you saw in 2016 where you had people um, come out and say, you know, this candidate has a 97% chance of winning, right? That's sort of a different statement than one poll that, that gets, you know, one set of estimates. And in 2016, we saw, you know, at least five or six um, different, you know, high-profile probability forecasts out there. And they all, you know, suggested um, Hillary Clinton would win, some by, you know, a truly lopsided margin, others a little bit uh, more narrowly. But what that research found was that um, when people see a poll, they don't put as much stock or as weight into that as they do these probability forecasts. Um, when people saw a probability forecast, they took that with more certainty about what the outcome of the race would be. And there's a little bit of evidence that in a lopsided election, those probability forecasts might actually um, make it less likely that people will vote. And again, that was pretty experimental work. There's a lot more that needs to be done, but I absolutely share the concern. And I think there's, at least we're starting to see some evidence that those probability forecasts um, go even further in, in perhaps affecting people's perceptions about a campaign. Yeah, I, I want to let Amy answer that too. I mean, I, I feel like without any evidence whatsoever, then when people see one of those probability forecasts at 60-40, what they think is that the candidate is going to get 60% of the vote, not that they have a 60% chance of winning. But what do you think about this effect on voter turnout, Amy? Uh, yeah, I, I think that people have a really hard time with with percentages and under, and in some ways translating them into what they what they mean in a real basis like even if something was 95 percent chance uh that something will happen that means that there's a one in 20 chance that it won't happen um which i think sounds a little different when you when you think of it it's it's not like it's really an impossibility we all we go we could all think of you know if you were told you you're likely to get an accident if you drove a certain way, um, you know, one out of 20 days. Would you really change your behavior be, because of that? I, I think you might. I mean, that you know, if you would get a serious accident, if, if, if you did a particular thing, um, or you would really put your health at risk if you did a particular thing one out of 20 times. That, I, I, I think that, that seems more significant. And one thing that um, Nate Silver has changed to the 538 forecast is he still has those percentages, but he's translating them into ratios more. And I, I, I do think people have an easier time of grasping that as, uh, the, you know, where something that seemed, would seem really, really unlikely if it was, um, you know, 40%, but if you say two out of five, it, it, it sounds a little more likely. More yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard, um, you know, people talking about the reasons why these polls miss, and a lot of people say it's because everybody is in a cell phone now and nobody can get through or you can't predict who you're going to get through to or people don't pick up unless they know the number. How big a factor is that, Courtney? Um, sure. So the mere fact that people have cell phones is actually not a barrier, and, and I'm really happy you brought that up because that is a really common misconception. Um 
you know, when, when cell phones became uh, a really prominent uh, technology in sort of the early 2000s, it's, it's true that at first pollsters, you know, weren't dialing them. We were still doing landlines. Um, but, you know, around 2008, 2010, the polling industry really changed. And it's now to the point where, you know, a well-done poll, um, at least half, if not a majority of the interviews are actually done with people um, called on cell phone numbers. And so that, you know, particular issue is actually not really a, a barrier anymore. And in fact, we found that cell phones are actually pretty helpful in reaching some of the groups that were proving really hard to get on landlines, such as younger adults and more, you know, racially and ethnically diverse samples of adults. Cell phones are great for that. Um, but you also brought up the issue of other technology barriers in sort of this um, climate of people not wanting to to take polls. And that's absolutely true. And there's, um, there's a lot of evidence that just actually within the last two years that's gotten dramatically worse. There's quite um, compelling documentation that the number of robocalls to cell phones has increased in the last two years. And we are seeing that in our cooperation rates and our response rates. Well, it's interesting. We were just having this conversation before the show started about people being unwilling to give key demographic information like household income and age and um, educational background to somebody over the phone that they don't really know. And I guess the pollsters have to keep their um, the who's paying for the poll anonymous. Otherwise, they introduce a different kind of bias. So what about that reluctance to even participate and give important demographic information to the respond, to the caller? Is that a factor? Well, um, to some extent, I would say that the other challenges we face are a lot bigger and, and more likely to introduce error. And, and the sponsorship issue... Um, actually, quite a few pollsters will say up front, they'll have the interviewer say, hey, I'm calling from wherever. And at Pew Research Center, we do that. You know, uh-huh. when we do polling in the U.S., we, we identify ourselves up front. You're absolutely right that some don't because they're afraid that if they announce they're from an outlet that's associated perhaps with the right or the left, they don't want that affecting people's um, decision to participate or their answers. Um, but some polls say that. And to your question about, you know, people being comfortable giving demographics, what we find is that among those who who agree to do the survey, um, the vast majority of the time, they'll answer all of our questions as best they can. Um, On a typical, you know, question about a policy, um, you know, maybe one or two percent of people will decline to answer on demographics. You know, maybe 5% will not want to give something like education or race. The ones where we see higher rates of, um, of people not wanting to give it are, are age, which can be closer to 10% not wanting to, you know, um, to report that, or income is also understandably sensitive, and you can get, you know, on the order of 10% not wanting to answer that question. Huh. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum this morning. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is political polls. Can we ever trust them again? Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, professor and department chair um, in political science at the University of Maine, and Courtney Kennedy, director of survey research at the Pew Research Center. Courtney, you were talking about what it, so if cell phones aren't the problem and refusal to give information is not the problem, you said, what are the challenges that pollsters are facing and how are they addressing what are at least perceived by the public to be some um, 
misses in 2016? Well, I think the two biggest challenges we have for telephone polls, the biggest challenge is just the response rate. It's just getting people um, to be willing to take the survey. Um, and that, so that's for phone. And one thing that I hope we'll have time to get into is the, um, the increase in polling that's done online. And the challenge there is getting a random sample of people to take the survey because on the internet, there is no master list that pollsters or researchers can use to draw a truly random national sample. How, how are these samples designed? I mean, is it just like dialing random numbers or how, how does that work, Amy? Well, I, I, I'd love for Courtney to talk about this a Database. little because I recently read a piece that she, she put out. One of the great things about Pew that listeners might not know is that besides doing really, really excellent polling is they uh, do a lot of studies about different kinds of techniques and how they're working and, you know, some of these polling issues that we've already talked about. And uh, she recently co-authored a piece on using voter files uh, versus uh, random digit dialing. And she'd be a great person to explain that to the audience. Well, with that introduction, Courtney, take it away. Sure. Um, so that's, that's right. There's two main ways um, that pollsters do phone polling these days. The more traditional way leverages the fact that in this country, um, not true around the world, but, but in the United States, we actually have a comprehensive list of all the possible landline phone numbers and all the possible cell phone numbers. And that is like the perfect place to begin the process of doing a poll because you can take those lists and draw a beautiful, random, representative sample that covers almost everybody. Between those two lists, you know, on the order of 97, 98% of Americans have either a cell phone or a landline. Um, and so we use those to draw um, national samples. And as you said, one thing in uh, election polling that's becoming quite popular is using lists of voter files. So, right, each state maintains their list of registered voters. And there's now quite a few companies that combine those lists, um, try to clean them, keep them updated, and they, um, you know, let researchers use them to draw samples uh, for polls. And what we found recently was that both methodologies produce pretty similar results. And even though, you know, one might expect that if you draw your sample from a voter file, maybe you'd get biased results that it would, you know, be too engaged or too old or what have you, we, we really didn't see that. If, if the polls weighted properly they, they both did pretty well it's interesting um you talk about these voter lists because i was reading a piece from nate Cohn at the upshot at the new york times that was saying that one of the problems that people had in 2016 was because the wisconsin voter registration file does not have party affiliation and so the polling in wisconsin missed party affiliation which is a key predictor of voter behavior is that a factor Yes. I mean, when you um, when you don't have that type of information, it, it makes it that much harder, right? Because these days you've got nine out of ten people on the phone not taking the survey. So if, you, if you're in a state where they keep a record of who's registered with which party or who's registered with, with you know, no party, um, 
and as a pollster, if you know that about both the people that take the survey and the people that don't take your survey, um, you're in a much better spot about knowing, you know, the quality of your sample and how representative it is. Because you can use that information to see if you're getting proportionally too many people from one party taking your survey, and you can even, you know, adjust for that kind of thing. So I, I think that's that's right. You know, states where that type of information is is not available, then the pollsters flying a little bit more blind with respect to whether they have that distribution um, correct. But so nine out of 10 people that get called for these polls refuse to take the poll? Yipes. Oh, yeah. It's even it's even less these days. You know, up until about 2016, our average national um, telephone response rate was about 9%, 10%. And in the last two years, as I mentioned, things have been getting even more challenging to the point where in a, a typical response rate these days is closer to 6%. Wow. I'm really surprised. Amy? Yeah. And one of the issues is, you know, it, when if you're there's anything systematic about, uh, you know, the relative proportions of people who are willing to answer or not, if there's any kind of what would be called a response bias or a non-response bias. Like a lot of times after a political debate, like a big presidential debate, if a particular candidate seems to have done really well, um, the supporters of that candidate are a little more likely to respond. The one that's seen as as not, they're less enthusiastic right then. They don't respond and it will show up as a kind of blip in the polling. But it doesn't mean that it's something that's changed underlying preferences. It's like sometimes you don't know when there's a change if it in, in the underlying polling, if it means people aren't going to come and vote because they've they're unhappy with the candidate or they've changed their preferences or if it's really some kind of artifact of of enthusiasm at that moment well so it's in a way a kind of miracle that the polls do come as close as they do i mean that was one of the things that was in an article of yours that i saw courtney that the polling actually has to cover a couple of dimensions not only what is the voter gonna choose on the ballot but also whether they're actually gonna even go yeah that's right and i i think uh amy made that point earlier as well um that issue of trying to determine among the people that you interviewed who's actually going to vote is is probably the hardest thing to do because you know people um have lives and and you know they might have intended to vote but they don't or they might have just out and out kind of overstated how likely it was that they were going to vote. It, it's just, um, it's very hard to predict future human behavior, right? And, and that's definitely true with elections as well. And um, I really appreciate the, the clarification a moment ago about um, non-response bias, because um, while it is the case that um, these low response rates, they sound really concerning, and they are, because it means that there is a real risk that the poll uh, might have some error in it. What what the research and the science has shown over the last 15, 20 years is, is it, it is kind of remarkable that even at these low response rates, a poll that's well-designed and well-adjusted, they do tend to you know still capture the American public um, very well and even perform pretty similar to you know, multi-million dollar federal surveys um, in terms of getting the right distribution of, of Democrats and Republicans. So we're, we're lucky that even at low response rates, polls are doing as well as they are. Go ahead, Amy. 
Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. And I'd sort of just add with the whole turnout question, looking at the midterms, one of the big questions is, you know, whether younger voters are going to show up. Um, and, you know, that clearly could change the shape of the electorate if you have younger voters who have voted, who tend not to vote very much <laughs> during midterm elections if they if they do show up. Um, you know, so it, you know, this whole question about turnout is just is is always essential um it's it's uh and it and it can be it can be a bit hard to predict and um you know sometimes the younger voters don't don't respond as much to polls uh even more i you know i when that, when that data is available i'll see that they're it's harder to get to get them to respond um, and then, you know, there's a concern that are the ones who respond somehow different than the ones that did, mm, yeah. um, you know, but I, I think that's one of, you know, just more broadly speaking, looking at this mid, the midterm elections is thinking about who really is going to show up. Are the younger voters going to show up, um, you know, uh, that because I think that that was a big part of what happened. Also, when you look back at 2016 and what people expected to happen. Um, some muted turnout among African Americans in some of the key states, I think, really made a difference for the outcomes. Yep. Well, so what adjustments, Courtney, have the best pollsters made in order to improve their outcome uh, for 2018 over what happened in 2016? Well, one thing that was very interesting in 2016 that we saw is that, um, you know, there was a, a very strong relationship between how much education, how much formal education a voter had, and who they were going to vote for for president. Um, and that's not always been the case. Um, but, uh, you know, for example, if you think about the, the Democratic Party in, you know, elections of, of past, it would perhaps be the, the case that, you know, um, they'd get support from sort of the, the lowest end of the education spectrum, um, you know, the really, uh, you know, uh, low, lowest income folks that benefit from social safety net programs, you know, Roosevelt Democrat types. And then they also do well among very educated folks, you know, um, such as people with uh, advanced degrees in education and whatnot. Um, but in 2016, we didn't see that. We saw this strong relationship. And so the lower educated voters broke heavily for Trump, and the higher-educated voters, college graduates, um, broke heavily for Clinton. And that's important because we've seen for years and years that a typical poll will tend to have too many college graduates responding. There's just something about having a college education that tends to make people more likely to, to you know, pick up the phone and do the survey if a pollster calls them. And a lot of polling organizations have seen that, and you know they've always adjusted, or not always, but um, have started to adjust their data to make sure that that um, that share that were college graduates was proportional in their poll versus you know the greater population, so that you didn't have those college graduates over influencing the results of the poll. And in 2016, when we really dug into the details. We saw that at the state level in particular, you know, those upper Midwest states, there were so many polls that were not adjusting for that education imbalance. And a lot of the polls weren't even asking 
education level, mm-hmm. which which floored me. And so I think that it's not the only reason, but it was a clear one of the clear reasons why these polls overstated support for Clinton and understated support for Trump and and um, Republicans more more uh, generally. So explain to people what these aggregators are, like 538 and the upshot, that take all of the polling that's happening all over the country and sort of create this composite picture. When they do that, do they take these underlying flaws into consideration as they build their consensus model or not? Well, 538 tries to do that because they have different quality. You know, they look at the quality of the poll, how well they've done in the past, so whether they have a tendency to favor one party over over another. But then they, you know, right now you have them presenting three different models (laughs) for each race with different kinds of data in it and – you know, what, sometimes they throw in things like the percent, like one, of the, one of them will throw in um, a number of different factors, the, the middle one, like there's one that's simply based on polling with these adjustments, and then the second one adds a number of different things to do with the partisanship of the district in the past and the how much uh, the candidate has raised in contributions from individuals and a number of other kinds of factors, and then a third one that then throws in also where uh, groups... Like that have done a lot of assessments of districts in the past, where they rank the district in or the state in terms of its uh, its lean right then for that for that campaign. So um, it, that you know that's a very complicated complex kind of model with lots of different things. Other people will just look at polling averages um, and which are just all lumped together. And, and sometimes those polling averages, it's not even clear that they're consistently keeping the same period of time, like polls in the last week or polls in the last two weeks or whatever. So it's really willy-nilly kind of thing. On the other hand, I think it is always good to look at more than one poll. Um, But, you know, what I always say when I teach something about, you know, when I teach polling in a public opinion class to undergraduates is that you really shouldn't just even look at the number. Any particular poll number is... Is some is should be you have to take account that there's margin of error in there and that there's what's called the confidence level. So really, if you know a poll says a particular candidate's getting 91 percent of the vote, it might be 91 percent of the vote plus or minus three percent, and you're 95 percent confident that it's actually within that range. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually what the poll is, uh, you know, a poll is saying. It's not saying that one number. Well, I want to get in the second half of the show to how ordinary people can read these things and understand what they're looking at. But before we even do that, I want to give Courtney a chance to talk about aggregators. And before we do that, I want to take a little station break. So um, at this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair in Political Science at the University of Maine, and Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at the Pew Research Center. Um, So Courtney, oh wait, our topic today is political polls. Can we ever trust them again? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. If you're calling locally, it's 469-0500. We have only one listener in the line open, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that other others can also uh, call in. 
Uh, don't wait to the last minute. Get your call in early. Um, we have a caller right away. Yo, go ahead. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. Isn't it expected that published poll results will affect voters' choices? And doesn't that make it a form of election meddling? Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for being Community Radio. Thanks, Yo. I mean, that's back to the question we talked about earlier, Courtney, about whether the polls affect um, voter behavior and how big that effect is. What do you think? Right, absolutely. I, I think it's exactly the right question to be asking. Um, but, you know, what is the the state of science? What is the research? Uh, my view is that it's, it's understudied. And while it's um, certainly understandable for people to draw that connection, I'd say that there's not enough data linking, um, you know, public behavior to um, the information environment and, and to any specific poll outcome. Um, it's, it seems natural that, um, that there could be an effect, but I, I think it's, it's vastly understudied and it needs more attention. I would not conclude from, um, you know, the, the studies that exist that there's a very strong relationship there. And, you know, um, like I said, I, I, and I think we're seeing a difference between interpretation and reaction to these forecasts versus a given poll result. And we might not want to um, throw them all in the same bucket and, and think about and treat them the same way. So talk about whether the the um, aggregators um, are like more trustworthy for an ordinary person than a single one-off poll. What about that, Courtney? Um, so there's a, a positive and a, and a drawback, I think. Um, I agree with Amy that there is a lot of sense to looking at multiple polls. In general, that's, you know, a very wise thing to do. That's, that's good advice um, because that helps to remove some of the error that's just due to sampling, that's just due to the fact that, that you talk to a sample of people and not the entire population. That said, it's important to keep in mind that even these averages of polls are not going to be perfect. Um, the averages, it, most of the ones that I see, they tend to um, include virtually, you know, any range of polls, both the, the ones that are done very carefully, you know, using the, the latest, greatest methodology, all the way down to, you know, your overnight poll that's done with very, um, you know, much less rigorous methodology. And so just by lumping all that together and taking the average, I'm not convinced that you've got, you know, a, uh, a number that you can lean too heavily on. So in general, it's a good idea, but you have to bear in mind that the average is only as good as the inputs. And sometimes the inputs um, are, are not necessarily very robust. We've got another caller on the line, Charlie, from Mount Desert. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yes, hi. I, I just uh, wanted to say, first of all, that I have a real problem with polls in general because of many of the reasons that have already been, been discussed by your panelists here today, primarily uh, that I think it's really, really hard these days to get a representative sample. But I think also people don't always tell the truth about what they're going to do on polls. And I haven't heard that uh, particular problem mentioned very much, but I know that the, if you feel like you want to vote for a candidate that you might be embarrassed to tell your neighbors you're going to vote for. You just don't say that you're going to do that. You talk about something else, and, and then you go out and you vote uh, differently uh, when, when the voting time comes. 
But uh, more than that, I think looking at the bigger picture, I'm really concerned about the state of democracy right now. In fact, I think democracy overall is in a crisis that is absolutely as great as it was during the Civil War and, and arguably greater than that in the minds of many people. Uh, and how it's all going to turn out, uh, I think, is going to depend upon us individuals because a democratic system is, is built upon the principle that the ultimate arbiter is the voter. So, and Charlie, voter, yes. sorry, are you getting around to asking our guests whether this is all good for democracy or not? Yeah. Okay. That, that's the point. Is, is to, I, think, I think democracy is, is under great threat right now. And anything like polls, for example, that tend to suppress the voter turnout are a big problem. I think we need to really work on ways to get get more more voters so let's expand on charlie's question a little bit i mean the horse race dominates the news coverage more than we hear about the issues that the candidates face and um, is this any way to conduct an election i mean would it be somebody's civic duty to participate in a poll or should we really just not look at them at all what do you think go ahead amy okay well i mean i i think um I've often thought that polls are really not that helpful to the average citizen. It's almost a form of entertainment more than anything else. Um, I, I, uh, it's obviously going to be helpful to candidates running campaigns and, of course, plenty of other situations where you want to have survey data. But there does seem to be that, that kind of demand for it. And I'd also point to other things that I find distasteful during campaigns uh, that are that are more institutional like uh, media stories about debates that focus on conflict and don't do any real fact checking uh, they just say oh these people argued and they disagreed and and they don't really you know say which which individual was right uh, you know that that's not horse race coverage that's that's using a kind of conflict frame and I think that's really problematic but you know where I have seen sometimes where it's useful for voters when they uh, to look at polling data if if the polling data is good polling data is when they're trying to do some kind of strategic voting and you know maybe I mean we saw this certainly in Maine back in 2010 where I really think that polling drove what happened in the governor's race at the very end when it looked like um, you know Libby Mitchell was not going to win that she was falling behind LePage and people who were opposed to LePage flocked over to Cutler. Um, you know, I mean, that was something where polling played a role, uh, whether, and, and, and there were a lot of people who I think, um, you know, it, it affected their vote, whether they, sh- that should have or not, I guess that's a matter of judgment. I would think though, that having ranked choice now changes that somewhat. I mean, people still may vote strategically to some extent, uh, but by and large, it, you know, for the races that Maine has now that use ranked choice, which are not the governor's race, <laughs> but uh, or any state legislative races, just the federal race, people can, uh, you know, they can sort of just pick their preferences and pick them in order. I want to – no, go ahead, Courtney, please. I'd like to add to that um, broader question of what's the benefit to polling – I absolutely agree that that hearing horse race numbers, um, there is, I would say that I don't see any direct benefit to the public 
um, from hearing that type of information. I think the fundamental benefit to the public from polling is indirect. It's the function that polling plays in our democracy. Polling gives the public a voice. It is literally the only mechanism that we have as a country that's designed to give the entire public, you know, the cross-section of the public, equal voice. You know, we have other things where people can express themselves, like social media, campaign donations, voting. Um, but we know that those other tools tend to be used more by, you know, wealthy, educated people and less used by people with fewer resources. Um, a true random sample, you know, public opinion poll is that only tool that we have to give voice to the public. And so, you know, seeing those numbers, that might not do anybody any good. But what that information does is it gets picked up, you know, in the national conversation or the state-level conversation and good reads about what the public is thinking and what they're experiencing is, in fact, a check on those elected officials in government. It, it prevents them from just making up you know, what they think the public opinion is, right? There'd be plenty of people that would just want to assert the public wants this or the public likes me. Participate in a poll because that's the way to have your voice heard and we prevent elected officials from just being able to make up that kind of information. Interesting point of view. We've got another caller and then I want to come back to Amy. Go ahead, David, from Brooklyn. You're on the air. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm actually sort of amazed at this program. I'd, later on, after I say what I say, I'd, I'd like for you to maybe explain to me where you people get your money. Who's paying you to do this? But did I just hear correctly that the the, the last uh, speaker was saying that polls were a better way to get the pulse of the public than voting because voting was was uh, susceptible to uh, big money interest? Is that what I just heard? I mean, yeah, is our democracy in trouble or not? I, I don't understand what the function. I, I feel like I'm in another kingdom. What is the function? I mean, I thought we were supposed to vote our opinion about the, the issues. I, I, what, is it, what is it like when, when I'm basing my, my vote on how everybody else feels? Well, let, let me put that... Rather than how I feel. I don't understand what the purpose, that 6%, 6% response to your calls. 6%, that's nothing, you know. Thank yeah, thanks, David, for your question. Let me put that back to Courtney and let her um, address the issue that you raised about whether responding to a poll is a higher civic duty than voting itself. Go ahead, Courtney. Thank you. No, that, that, that's a fair counterpoint. I might not have been... Uh, totally clear in, in, in the point I was trying to make. Voting is, is of course, vital. Um, I, I wasn't trying to argue otherwise. I was just trying to say that there also is a value in a democracy from having public opinion polls as well. And I say that because it's very, the research is clear that people who vote, uh, you know, more are more likely, uh, people who have more resources, right, people who are more educated, have more money, their likelihood of voting is higher than other people in society. Like, that's just an established fact. And so voting is vital to our democracy. It's how we elect our leaders. No one's you know, here questioning that. 
Um, what I'm saying is that a poll does something slightly different that is not more valuable than voting, but is also brings some value to the table because we are trying to bring a cross-section of the voice of the public and provide that information for the historical record. And I'd also clarify, I'm not saying that public opinion should be what legislators use to make every decision. It should be one of many inputs in governance, right? It should, I'm not saying that the public will should rule. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that, you know, as legislators consider all the factors and all the data as they're trying to make their very difficult decisions, you know, the public experience, public attitudes should be one of those inputs. And um, to the issue of funding, Pew Research Center is a nonprofit, so we have no profit or commercial interests at all. Um, other pollsters are different, but that's how it is at my employer. Did you want to jump in on this? And we'll take a quick break, Amy. Sure, yeah. Let me jump in on a few things related to these issues to do with democracy and polling. And uh, the argument that Courtney's making is something that pollsters have made for a long time. George Gallup talked about polls as the voice of the people. And I think that's certainly true when it comes to issue polls. You know, how are we going to know what the public thinks about a tax bill or a health care bill or anything else like that if we don't have some kind of polling data? I think that is very important. Uh, when it comes to campaign polls, in some ways, that's a little, you know, less of a case because we are going to have the election ultimately, and that's important. On the other hand, campaign polls can help us understand a little bit more about what was going, what's going on, um, who it is that supports different kinds of candidates, what issues were important to people when they went to vote. You know, those sorts of things have some value as well. And even this whole question about who is going to show up, you can see through certain kinds of polls. Those of us who have been looking at the the live polls done, um, you know, with the New York Times, the upshot, the, the latest one from the main second congressional district, which actually shows a tie between Golden and Poliquin. Then it goes on to show different kinds of turnout assumptions and you know, really, basically, the larger the audience, uh, the, lar the larger the number of voters who show up on Election Day, the more likely it is that, that Golden is going to win, and the fewer, um, the more likely it is that Pollock is going to win. I think that's, that's something that's kind of good to know, uh, not just for the campaigns, but for voters as well. Thanks, Amy. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at the Pew Center. We're talking about political polling. Can we ever trust them again? We have um, taking listener calls at this time. Just have time for a couple more calls, 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We do have a caller on the line right now, Frank from Lemoyne. Go ahead. So it sounds like to me that polls are kind of like signs. Uh, it's for the person who doesn't pay attention to what the person who's running for an election says. Polls for the politician is to keep changing. The, so if, if they say uh, one thing and all of a sudden all the polls go, oh, we don't like that, they just switch to that. That's what polls are for for politicians. 
not for if the hospital is running because that's a whole other situation. But polls for politicians is strictly so they can change their rap, period. And the only reason the signs are out there, the person with the prettiest sign, a lot of people don't vote for the issues. They vote strictly for maybe the way the guy's cuter than the other person or the woman looks better than the guy. They don't vote on them. And then you kind of insulted the low-end people of the spectrum, um, how the intelligent people, the high-end people vote, which is pretty rude. But that's what polls are about. Thanks, in Frank. In my mind. Yeah, and pay attention. Thanks, Frank. I mean, this is all a big question about the role that polls play in a functioning democracy and especially in the um, run-up to an election. You know, it's one thing to do issue polling once the election has been decided, as you're pointing out, Amy, and it's another thing to do candidate polling in the run-up to the election. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm interested in that. You know, if you're an ordinary citizen, an ordinary vo- voter, and you're paying attention to some of the polling news, what are you looking for in order to know which polls to believe and which ones to just um, walk away from? What do you say, Courtney? Courtney? Yes. Um, well, I think the bottom line is um, it's difficult. I, I wish I had a, um, you know, a, a simpler, more rosy answer, but I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that the public is not really uh, presented with, I would say, enough information to make those judgments easy. I, I wish the case were different. But, um, you know, typically when you see a poll reported, there's just maybe the, the dates of the interviewing and the sample size, maybe a margin of error. And frankly, that's not enough to make a really informed uh, evaluation of how good a poll was. So. Um, the polling industry itself is trying to improve that situation by setting up um, a process where pollsters are um, encouraged to report more of those important details, such as where did they draw the, the sample of people that they interviewed and what mode was used to conduct the interviews. So there's some progress being made, but to be honest, it's, it's quite difficult to determine um, what is a more versus less rigorous poll these days. Catherine from Appleton, you have a call. You're on. Go ahead. You're on the air. Catherine? I hear. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead. Okay. This doesn't have to do with voting, really, or polling. But I thought this country was founded as a republic. And I don't know how we became a democracy with 51% carrying the voice of the people. So could you please explain the difference between a republic which we're supposed to be, and a democracy, which we have, I guess, become. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Catherine. I think we'll make that the topic of a completely different show because today we're talking about polling, and we really um, want to stick to that topic. Um, so, I mean, th- you know, as you were just saying, Courtney, the um, the role that polling plays in an election and how citizens participate in or consume polling and the amount of polling that we get reporting on through the media, there seems to be a disconnect between how much of it we hear and how much of it we can believe. Um, What do you think, Amy? What is the role of the media and polling and elections and what should an ordinary citizen make of all of this? How How should we be smarter consumers of this information? Well, I think most voters, when they're trying to decide how to vote, they should put their attention elsewhere. I mean, I think it's it's interesting, and it 
the poll I mean I think polling is fascinating I think it can be very helpful in understanding certain things about politics but you know for the average voter uh, I first of all the average voter is not just simply affected by polls there's really not uh, you know support for that it can sometimes affect strategic voting in particular situations but in general that's not that's not what's important to people people are are most influenced by their party preference more than anything else and um, then people also look at various issues and when it comes to issue polling which i talked a little bit about you know you really can there's uh, that information i think is is important um you know we we know um you you can look at you can look over the years at you know what has been the support for different kinds of policies and uh, then you can see were they reflected in the in the votes of elected officials. Um, you know the 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 health care not passing health care reform uh, repeal, not repealing health health care. You know the Affordable Care Act was something that most people in the country wanted. You know I mean and we know that that was a it was a very very unpopular effort. Um, you know so. I, and you can compare that, as political scientists have, to other votes, other really prominent votes. Um, you know, so I, I think. Um, but in know, the in the run up to an election like this, and in terms of the campaign polling, what do you think, Courtney? In terms of how ordinary citizens can be better consumers of this information, and how much of it we should be seeing in the media. I do think that it can be helpful to see um, the issues that people say are are on their minds because, um, you know, for example, people that, that live in, you know, urban areas might not have a good handle on what, what people in more rural, you know, farm-oriented communities are uh, thinking and feeling and, and what's weighing on their minds. So it can give people... Um, more perspective about what other folks in their community and in their state are thinking about, what they're concerned about, and, and what they're looking for out of their elected officials. But that's not really what we're getting. Mostly we're getting who's going to win. That's right. And some there's tremendous variation in the news media uh, on that issue. Some journalists and journalistic organizations um, have literally changed their you know, their, their, their rules book, their style guide. The AP, for example, um, made it part of their practice that they don't want their stories to be led with a horse race number. They have come to view as that is unhelpful to their readership. And so you see very serious efforts like that. And then there's, you know, other reporters out there that are totally unapologetic about writing a whole story around the, around a horse race number. And so that's just Sort of, I think the reality of, of what you see in, in uh, the, the news media at this point in time. If I'm called to take a poll, um, what should I be looking for when I decide whether to respond or not, Courtney? Sure, I, I do think it's helpful if you um, if it's not provided to you, you certainly can ask the interview the interviewer who sponsored the poll. Sometimes they'll tell you, and sometimes they won't. But, you know, if they don't want to give that information, you know, then, then you can make your choices and proceed from there. That's one thing. Another is, you know, obviously gauge your own personal reaction to the questions. Um, one thing that, um, that, that's 
presence right now is that there's both, you know, just straight public opinion polls that are trying to get a very neutral read of where the public is at on different issues. And at the same time, you have these other polls that are what's called message testing that are done by campaigns to try to hone what is going to be the most effective way for our campaign to talk about this issue or, you know, deal with our candidate. And people often find that a very negative, very frustrating experience because they're given these really partisan, polarizing statements. A lot of them are negative. And so if you feel like you're in a message testing poll and you don't, you know, you don't want to be part of that, then, you know, Bail. feel free to hang up and, and make that choice. Yeah. We're running out of time this morning. We could have gone on for another half an hour. But, um, Amy, parting thoughts? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's it, polling can be very useful. The, the, the most annoying of all go beyond message testing and to push polls that are used by a particular campaign to spread information, very negative information, sometimes misinformation about another candidate. But I, I would hope that people will participate in polls. I think it's helpful to have the information. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it can be useful for all of us to know about our fellow citizens. Courtney, last few words here. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think we've had a really robust conversation about, you know, both the strengths and weaknesses of polls. Um, but on net, I think it's important that the public be given a voice, and that's part of the conversation. Well, we are out of time now. I want to thank you to our guests this morning, Amy Freed, Professor and Department Chair, Political Science, University of Maine, and Courtney Kennedy, Director of Survey Research at the Pew Research Center. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in this series. We'll see you here next month when we'll be looking back at the November election and reflecting on what happened and what it means. Bye for now.